Friends, we're going to be in Romans 10, which Evan's just read for us. It is on page 946 in your pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn there. And before we jump in, let me just remind us a little bit about the series we're in by reminding us about these wonderful little bulletins we have. If you go to page six in your bulletin, um, sometimes we'll print just the scripture there. It's a great thing to read and, and highlight during a sermon. Sometimes we'll print a little overview of the series we're in. That's what this is, an overview of the series we're in on missions. Um, you can take this home and look at it. It may help you know what to pray for, for what we're going to be talking about. And it may help you think about what God may be doing in your life. There's a place for notes on page seven. And I also want you to look at the front page. The front of the bulletin always has a passage of scripture at the bottom. That's the passage that we'll really focus on during the sermon. So if you just take the bulletin home, maybe put this on the fridge or set it on your nightstand, you've got a passage right there that will hopefully connect you to what we've been talking about. So the bulletin, I hope, is more than information. I hope it's a discipleship tool um, to help us all as we walk with the Lord. Um, let me pray for us now as we turn to God's word. Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. And uh, thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your word. Lord, if there's anything unclear, it's in us. The blindness is in our eyes, Lord. The obstinance is in our heart. The slowness is in our mind. And so we ask you for help, Lord. Um, as we look at this passage, would you please speak to us? Make things clear, make them simple for us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And also, Lord, make our hearts able to receive. Encourage us, Lord, pastor us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Twice in the Gospel of John, near uh, the end of it, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, as the Father sent me, just so I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And we've just been looking at this verse this fall, the past few weeks, and we'll continue to look at it, asking what does it mean that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, meaning Jesus was sent with a mission, a purpose, and that somehow we're sent like he was sent. And what we're asking this, this fall is essentially, okay, well, what is our mission? What does it mean to be sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world? And we know because of what Jesus says that we're sent as he was sent, that his mission is both the model and the source for our mission. So if you're, if you're here today and you're a Christian, as we dig into this theme, you should hear some things that Jesus has made you to do, things he's deeply passionate about. This may help you get close to those questions about purpose. If you're not a believer and you wonder why Christians act the way they do, this is a great opportunity to listen in and you'll see that we're people, we actually believe Jesus is Lord, and if we're doing anything right, it's because we're trying to listen to him. And so this is a great way for you to see what it is that Jesus wants his church to do. And you can evaluate us. You may walk away and say, I don't think they do that very well, and you may be right. So we're going to keep looking at what it means to be sent into the world on mission, just as the Father sent Jesus into the world on mission. Last week I pointed out that when we look at Jesus' mission, the model for our own, we see that he's about these three realities. He's bringing about three new realities in our midst. New life, a new people, and a new kingdom. He finds individuals and he wants to bring them new life. He then organizes them as a new people and he inaugurates a new kingdom, a whole way of being 
on earth together. And we started last week in new life, that's where we'll continue today. And by starting a new life, we kind of start at the depths. Because if, if the individual never gets new life, they can't be brought into the new people, they can't be part of the new kingdom. So we're starting at the center, if you will. And last week, when we started to look at Jesus' mission of new life, we went to a conversation he had with a man named Nicodemus early in his ministry. It's recorded in John 3. And in that conversation, Jesus made a connection. He said that new life begins with the new birth. He told Nicodemus several times, unless one is born again, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, they cannot see, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, kingdom of God represents coming into new life. New birth is where new life begins. The question I want to ask with you this week is how does Jesus, particularly now that he's been resurrected, he's ascended, he's not here physically, Nicodemus can't find Jesus physically to talk to. How then does Jesus continue his ministry of bringing new life through the new birth? How does he do that ministry now, seeing that he's absent? And that's where we'll realize that he strategically calls us to be a part of it. So that's, that's the question we need to dig into. The furtherance, the continuance of the mission of new life through Jesus' people that he sends. Now to look at this, dig into this question, how does Jesus further this ministry? We're gonna turn to the greatest of missionaries, the apostle Paul. And we're gonna turn to his greatest letter, Romans. Now we're gonna be in Romans 10 in a minute, but before we get there, let me just connect what Paul's been saying in Romans to what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've gotta be born again. He describes this not as a physical rebirth. If you're born again as a Christian, you don't wake up with a new body, right? He describes it as something that's spiritual. The spirit acts upon you, and so it's spiritual in nature. What I wanna show you is Paul's been talking about the same thing from Romans five through eight. He's been talking about this new birth with different language that happens by the Spirit. So I just wanna show you a parallel here so you can hear this connection. So in Romans eight, verse nine, Paul speaking to Christians says, you, you Christians, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul's saying you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit, right? Now remember back to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John three. Jesus says to Nicodemus about being born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see the same distinction? Paul's saying the same thing. Something happens to the Christian where they no longer live according to the flesh, the old ways, the selfishness, the fallenness. And even though they're in these bodies and they feel temptations, the spirit of God has given them a new heart. And now they live by the spirit. So this is what Paul's talking about, the same thing Jesus was talking about. Now, when Paul gets to chapter 10, what he's gonna set before us, sort of like a mechanic peering over an engine, he's going to explain to us the mechanics of how that new birth ends up happening in the life of someone right now because they can't go talk to Jesus in person like Nicodemus could. Now, 
Romans 10 is it's pretty dense territory. It's like cutting through thick brush. We can't get into all the details right now. But one of the questions Paul's wrestling with in Romans 10 is why more of his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites, haven't also come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord and given their lives to him. He's wrestling with this. And wrestling with this question brings to his mind the thought, well, perhaps what's going on is whatever needs to happen for a person to put their faith in Jesus hasn't happened for them yet. And that's what leads him to look over the engine and say, okay, well, what exactly needs to happen for a person to be born again? He lays out the process in four steps in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 10. I'll read these for you and I'll draw the steps out. This is wonderfully helpful if you wanna know how the new birth ends up happening today. Picking up at verse 14, Paul says, how then will they call on him? Call on him means having faith and calling out to Jesus as Lord. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's four steps that have to happen for someone to receive the new birth. They go like this. Number one, preachers must be sent. Number two, preachers must preach the good news. Number three, the good news must be heard and understood. Number four, the good news must be believed. Paul then sums this up, focusing on really just two facets of this process in verse 17. And this is the verse I really want to seize on today. In verse 17, he says, okay, faith, now that word faith means for Paul being born again, new life, faith, how does it happen? He says, faith comes by hearing, hearing what, Paul? Hearing through or by the word of Christ. So here's what's going on here. Here's just the main idea. Paul is saying, here's how the new birth works right now. A word, a message makes its way to someone's ear. It goes into the ear, it's understood by the mind. Then it has to drop into the heart. And then something has to ignite it in the heart that a person doesn't simply understand it, they come to believe it. They come to see it as true, as alluring, as glorious. And when that's happened, the new birth happens. You, you could, you know, one of the common images for this in the Bible, one of the most easy is a sower sowing seeds. Jesus uses it in Mark 4. It's the image of someone going out and sowing seeds. That's an image of someone speaking the word. And they sow the seed, they speak it, it goes into the ear. And then whether or not it takes root kind of depends on the soil, the type of heart that lies underneath the ear. You know, an image that I've had in mind as I thought of this process, maybe helpful for you, is the image of a, a gasoline combustion engine. And if you think about how a gas-powered car works, um, it needs gasoline to come in, right? The fuel intake. You've got to have gas coming in. Now, you, you can liken that to the word coming in. But if it's only the word coming in, there's no power. There has to be a spark to ignite the gas. And when that happens, it releases a gas and it presses the piston and the car comes to life. 
So you could think of the new birth like this. The word, like gasoline, has to find its way into the piston, into the ear, but then there has to be a spark that ignites it so the person believes. Friends, our job is to get that gas into people's tanks. We have no power over the spark. The spark is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, we can't make that happen. But the spark needs the gas, right? The soil needs the seed, even though we don't make the seed grow. So we have an indispensable role to bring the word to the ear so it can drop into the heart and we can pray for internal combustion. So here's what I wanna do. Here's my desire with today's sermon is that we would see our mission or at least the center of our mission as being sowers, as people that are meant to bring the word to people's ears so that they can hear. And we wouldn't just see this, but we would be convicted and even enthralled and excited by it. This is a sermon about evangelism. And I don't want you to be intimidated or afraid the way I would be if I was sitting there. I'd think, oh man, I wish this was a different topic. I'm just gonna get through it. This makes me nervous. No, this is the center of God's mission. If you want your life to involve miracle, get involved in evangelism. This is where the Holy Spirit loves to roll. The biggest miracles are the miracles of new birth. You wanna see miracles? You wanna get on the cutting edge? You wanna feel God's power? You wanna learn to be desperate in prayer? Get in the business of praying that people would hear and believe. So here's what we'll do. We know in verse 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing a particular word. Paul calls it the word of Christ. So the first thing we're gonna do is say, what's the content of that word, right? It's not just anything. You can't just put any gas in the car, right? What's the word? Content of the word, number one. Number two, who are the messengers? Maybe this is my job, John Frederick's job. Maybe it's not your job. Maybe you hire people to do it. Who are the messengers? Number three, we have to look at the word's power. We have to look at the word's power lastly so that we're not intimidated, but we're excited about this mission. And with that third, the word's power, I'm gonna try to get real practical and give us some practical ways to think about evangelism. Sound good? Number one, what was number one? The word's content. Okay, faith comes by hearing, verse 17, and hearing the word of Christ. So what's the word of Christ? I don't know, maybe that just means a specific thing that Jesus said during his ministry. Or maybe it's the whole Bible. Maybe you can just, if you're sitting on the subway, you start reading Leviticus. Maybe that's what it is. What, what does Paul mean by this? We gotta answer that question. I think you could translate this as the word about Christ. What I think it is is the gospel. I think that because of verse 16. Notice just above this, in verse 16, Paul brings up the gospel. He says, but they, he's talking about his fellow Israelites, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So when he comes in verse 17 and he talks about hearing the word of Christ, it's sitting parallel to the gospel. They're the same thing. So faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, which is the gospel. So now we need to ask, what is the gospel? The word gospel literally means good news or good message. It's the good news about what God has done for you and for the world in Jesus Christ. On Monday, 
I was in Tennessee with a few pastors and an older pastor who was 74 said to me, you ought to have a 24 word, 25 word summary of the gospel. And I started trying to do one yesterday when I was writing this sermon. So here's my 36 word summary of the gospel. (laughs) And it's too long. You'll see as I start to read it, you're gonna get lost, but here's my shot. By Jesus' death and resurrection, God conquered every obstacle to our happiness. Sin that separates, passions that enslave, justice imbalanced, even death. Turn to Jesus. You'll become God's son, daughter, forgiven, freed, forever loved. This is good news. In Jesus, God has personally crushed every obstacle to your happiness. That's the good news. Now, Paul, I think what he's doing in Romans 10, I want to show you how Paul might summarize the gospel here by latching on to some words that he's using a lot in this passage. So you might, you might say, how does Paul summarize the gospel? And let's just look at three words in Romans 10, God, righteousness, and faith, okay? God, righteousness, and faith. What does the gospel have to do with God? The gospel is the good news that God is. And God is revealing himself in Jesus Christ. You know, um, the Bible never uses the word atheist. You may be an atheist, um, but you may say, well, why does the Bible not talk about atheists? And I think the Bible is an amazing study of human nature. The Bible knows that we all end up with some type of God. The Bible calls these idols. Um, Jesus calls it your treasure, right? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your, your God is whatever's most important to you. It's whatever gives you ultimate hope. It's whatever you ultimately could never live without. It's the thing that your life, if you really could see it, like in some sort of spiritual X-ray machine, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, she orbits around that planet. Yeah, that's the sun in the center of her solar system. This is what she serves The good news of the gospel is that there is a God worthy of orienting your entire life around and he is revealing himself to you through the gentle eyes of Jesus Christ. Second, righteousness. Paul uses the word righteousness seven times in this passage. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Verse 10, with the heart one believes and is made righteous. And with the mouth One confesses and is saved. Righteous or righteousness for Paul is equivalent with being saved or having life. It's a huge word for him. Now, it's not a huge word for us. You probably don't use the word righteous unless you call someone self-righteous. It seems to us, righteousness might seem kind of like an old word, an outdated word. Well, it's not. Um, One of today's leading social psychologists, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, says... An obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. In his study, he's asking the perplexing question that while modern human beings unshackle themselves from the constraints of old religious forms of good and evil, why is it that we are so beside ourselves about morality? Just pay attention to public discourse. It's all about justice. 
fairness, bad behavior versus good behavior. It's all about calling people out when they don't live up to some sort of standard of righteousness. Well, where does this come from? Certainly not a scientific observation of things. What hate realizes, and he looks at multiple cultures, is he says, we actually have taste buds for righteousness. The same way you crave food or sex, he says, human beings crave to be righteous. It's how we're made. We wanna know that we're in the right. We're in the right when it comes to good and evil. We're in the right when it comes to how we should care about our relationships. We're in the right, Paul would say, when it comes to our standing before God. Paul is saying, this is at the very core of you. Whether or not you're right, Paul would say, whether or not you're just, pure, acceptable to God. Paul said, you don't want to have a life where you're unjust, impure, and unacceptable, especially not in God's eyes. So one of the debates happening in Romans is, can you make yourself right in your own strength? The answer is no. Israel has been a microcosm of the human race trying to do that. And the gospel says that God has come in Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 4, You can see it in your passage there. And Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What he means there is that this this law, this, this sense of oughtness and rightness that we can't live up to, Paul says that Christ is the end of it, meaning he completed it the way you complete a race. And in completing it, he has become the perfect righteousness. The things we couldn't do, he did. And by being the end of the law, Paul is saying he also took upon himself all the punishment, all the embarrassment, all the shame, all the being a hypocrite of the one who couldn't keep the law. So he ends its condemnation by being condemned for us. And what happens then, this is a bit confusing, but it's the gospel. What happens then is Christ clothes those who have faith in him in his righteousness. And Paul says, You gotta be right with God and righteous if you're gonna have life. The gospel's about God, the gospel's about righteousness, the gospel thirdly is about faith. Paul uses the word faith or believing a bunch in this. In our big verse 17, he says, faith or belief comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. What does this mean? It simply means this, that the, the posture one has to take, the journey they have to take for this righteousness is not like someone climbing a mountain to conquer it. It's like someone receiving a message and holding on to it. Faith is clinging to the Lord that has come near. Paul likens faith, I love this image, several times in this passage, he's quoting the prophets, he likens faith to calling on the name of the Lord. Those who call on the name of the Lord. That's what faith is. It's calling out and saying, help, help me, please, God, please help. In every way imaginable, I can't, and I believe that in Christ you have. This is the gospel for Paul, not what we do, but what God has done. Now, this is all the first point, the content of the word. Faith comes by hearing about the good news about Jesus. Now, one implication before we move to our second point. One implication about our mission to bring new life. I have often heard people quote this phrase that has been wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi, which goes, always preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Francis of Assisi did not say that. 
Now, the sentiment here I appreciate. I think what the people are trying to get at is they're like, don't live such a shoddy life that you undermine the beauty of the gospel. Like, be a beautiful person, but the logic is completely wrong. You can no more preach the gospel without words than you can feed your kids without food. The gospel is a word. It's a good message. It's news. It has to go into the ear, not the eye, not along the skin, not in the mouth with food or cold water. All these things are part of how Christians love others. But the decisive thing, remember, Paul says faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So our mission in this regard will involve speech. Words. Okay, that's the first, that's the content. Let's ask who's to do this. Like maybe this is why you hired me, so I can go do this. Um, well, certainly there's some truth to that. Paul says to Timothy, his young protege, he says, do the work of an evangelist. You ought to ask me that sometimes. Are you doing the work of an evangelist or just an administrator? And we also know from a passage in Ephesians 4 verse 11 that some people are uniquely gifted with the gift of evangelism. Paul talks about evangelists. Um, but when we look at the broader scope, I think of the New Testament, I think it becomes clear that this involves all of us. If you think about the, a passage, it's called the Great Commission. It comes at the end of Matthew, right at the end of Jesus' ministry. He looks at his followers and he gives them orders. And he says, go, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. He says, go and make disciples. Now, I don't think we would ever think that the ministry of making disciples is just for pastors, right? This is for all of us. Jesus envisions all of us being involved in this. Here's how John Stott, the late Anglican statesman, puts this about this great commission. He says, this commission is binding upon every member of the whole church. Every Christian is called to be a witness to Christ in the particular environment in which God has placed him. Further, although the public ministry of the word, what's happening right now, is a high office, private witness or personal evangelism has a value which in some respects surpasses even that of preaching, since the message can then be adapted more personally. So think about this. I don't know. There's like six or seven pastors on staff here. What if that's all we got for sowing seeds in Washington, D.C.? That's all we got. Between hospital visits, admin, doing Sundays. I mean, that's all we got, us. Or, I don't know, maybe we have 2,000 members in this church, give or take a few hundred. I don't know. What if it's all of us? And so everywhere you go into the nooks and crannies of the city, when you get on airplanes, when you move to different places through the State Department, what if it's all of us going out to sow seeds? Doesn't that seem more strategic, more potentially fruitful? Who are the word's messengers? We are. We are. God has entrusted you as his ambassador with the message of reconciliation. The word is not far from you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart, Paul says. It's Jesus right there to be spoken of. So those are our first two points. The word's content, 
is the clear articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Its messengers are all Christ's people. Third and finally, I want to look at the words power. And the way I want to do this is by giving you just seven brief truths that are meant to, I think, encourage us in evangelism. Because I, I, I get, I'm not great at this. I feel timid when it comes to this. Um, but I know with all my heart, this is at the center of the mission of God. It, the mission of God is more than this, it's not less. So, looking at the words power, which is far more powerful than us, let's look at seven things. And this manuscript's on the website if you can't keep up taking notes. So, number one, seven truths about evangelism and the power of the word of God. Number one, God is at work before we go to work. You need to know that God is at work around you. There's a a riveting scene in the book of Acts where Paul is trying to plant a church and do ministry in Corinth. He's getting beat up. He's discouraged. He wants to quit. And he has a vision. This is in Acts 18, verses 9 through 11. Jesus appears to him in a vision. He says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love that phrase where Jesus says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. Don't you think Paul would have said, can you tell me their names? Save me some time. I'll just go to their houses. He doesn't say that. But it's to let Paul know I'm at work. I see Jane, I see Fred, I see Jamal. I know them, I love them, I'm moving towards them. You're my mailman. Here's the message, go to their door, knock, read it. God is at work in your family. He's at work at your gym. He's at work in your workplace. He's at work where you vacation. He's at work at the coffee shop you frequent. And he has many there who are his. Be encouraged by that. Second, don't confuse evangelism with the results of evangelism. Evangelism is not conversion. We don't convert anybody. Remember the gas engine image. You're not the spark. You can't make faith happen. You can't make someone's heart love Jesus. Your job is just to get the seed under the soil. Paul says, again, speaking of the church in Corinth, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So maybe you're in a taxi ride and um, the brother driving you to the airport, like what happened to me on Sunday as a Muslim, and you fall into a conversation about Islam and Christianity and Jesus, the great prophet, and you say a few things that you believe Jesus is God and he forgives us our sins. It's clumsy, it's awkward. You're like, that was terrible. But you get out and you just think, well, Lord, that was my best shot. Little seed, please, please, Lord, Be at work in that man's life. Let him know there's more than just law, that there's grace. But know that conversion is the work of the Lord. Third, pray. Pray for boldness and opportunities. In the book of Acts early on, when the word of God is spreading like mad, um, people are getting locked up and put in jail. It happens to Peter at one point. He gets out and the believers huddle to pray And they pray this, listen to their prayer. And now, Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Pray for boldness and pray for opportunities. And friends, when you pray for opportunities, don't be surprised when they come. I've been doing this for the last two years and I'm shocked. They just pop up at the gym, at the coffee shop, in a cab. And when they come up, you'll see it and you'll think, I think there's a little doorway here to build a relationship and maybe start to talk about faith at some point. And here's what's going to happen. Look, the first move is like jumping in a cold pool. Like you're not going to want to do it. You got to push yourself in. Like in the cab ride, I, I was halfway there. I had just given a sermon on the new birth. I get in a cab. The guy's a Muslim. I'm driving to the airport and I'm thinking, how could I possibly not evangelize this guy? I'm a pastor. And the only thing I get out of my mouth was, how long have you been a Muslim? <laughs> and it opened up. He said, since 1987. I grew up in Richmond. Why'd you become a Muslim? I grew up in a bad neighborhood. I love the order it brings with rules. I said, man, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And we were off. We were off and it was cool. It was relaxed. But don't be surprised when opportunities come. Go ahead and jump in the cold pool. Be a little awkward. Don't be so polite you're never faithful. Make somebody uncomfortable. It's okay. Don't be ridiculous, but don't get to the end of your life and think, man, I just played it safe all the time. Just get a little awkward. It's okay. Fourth, use the word. It's powerful. One of the things that, that strikes you when, you when you look at the New Testament is how the word of God is a living thing working. So in Acts, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, we've been thankful because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And then he throws in, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Praise God for Epaphras. He just was the conduit. He brought the word. So if you're, getting, if you're in a relationship with someone, friendship, uh, maybe it's a son or daughter or grandkid, you know, evangelizing your kids is one of your first callings if you're a parent. Invite them to look at the primary sources. Treat them with that respect. Say, let's, go to, let's just go to the primary sources. You want to read Mark's gospel? It's not that long, 16 chapters. Let's read it together. Maybe we'll both learn something. No questions are off the table. Let's just jump in and let's watch Jesus through Mark's gospel. And trust, I mean, I don't mean this is magic, okay? It still requires reason and thinking and questioning and apologetics. But trust that the word has a power that you don't. So that's fourth, use the word. Fifth, we're wrapping up. Your mission field is where you are until God moves you elsewhere. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I can't really be a missionary. I'm at a public school or I'm at a Christian school. I'll wait till I go to college. That's where people are really sinful. I'll be a missionary. <laughs> you are where you are on purpose. Michael Green, a great evangelist, um, estimates that 80% or more of the evangelism in the early church was done not by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their networks, their networks of relatives, their close associates. They're hanging out by the well, getting water. They're outside working with the sheep or the goats. 
and they're just talking with people. These are people they've known for years. So what network has God put you in? What children has he given you? Grandchildren, nieces and nephews, aunts and uncles evangelize your nieces and nephews in a respectful way, in a way that lets their moms and dads know what you're doing. But pray into the networks you're in. Sixth, practice evangelism on a friend. We act like this is something that's easy to do. It's super hard. So what you might do is get a friend and say, hey, we're gonna do this thing. We're each gonna write out the gospel in 25 words or 50, and we're gonna share it with each other, and then we're gonna practice. You're gonna tell it to me, and I'm gonna question you. I'm gonna give you the hardest questions I can think. I'm gonna pick it apart, and I'm gonna have you defend yourself on this. And let's do this once a month over coffee. Why not? Why not? You know what's gonna happen? The gospel will minister to your heart as you do this. Seventh and finally, if you're going to lean into Jesus' mission to bring new life by bringing his word to people through evangelism, Reflect much on the heart of the sender. This isn't about just getting people out of eternal punishment. It's so much more. Remember Jesus' parable he tells in Luke 15 about the sheep. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. If you could somehow, in flesh, a father's heart for his wayward child, if you could put that into flesh, it would be Jesus Christ. Reflect much on the heart of the sender, the Father in heaven who sent the Son. Why? Because he so loved the world that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but come in and taste and find rest and have eternal life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous privilege and responsibility you've given us to get the gospel into the ears of so many people. We are afraid, we are too busy, and we prioritize other things. But just like you train David's hands for war, train our hands for spiritual battle. Train our hands to be evangelists. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.